from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. I think like our vaginas have a lot to say. I think we should let them we'll speak. will out of it and they'll just talk. Yes. One of the hardest things to absorb for those who are new to these kinds of fights. Again, if we won all of them, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> if you see a monster, don't try to run away. Step right up to it and say, what do you have to teach me? Why are you in my mind? I want to be the person who has cancer and doesn't run a marathon. Like, do I have to work that hard? No, it's the best excuse not to run a marathon. Welcome to Go Ask Ali. I'm Ali Wentworth. So we've all heard the word narcissist being thrown around. He's a narcissist. She's a narcissist. But what exactly is a narcissist? And how do we spot a narcissist in our life? And how do we get them the hell out of it? There is no better person to talk to about this than Dr. Craig Malkin. He's a clinical psychologist, author, and lecturer for Harvard Medical School. His internationally acclaimed book, Rethinking Narcissism, The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissists, has been translated into 12 languages. That's how many narcissists there are in the world. In February this year, Rethinking Narcissism was named by Oprah Daly as the best book to read if you have a narcissist in your life. 100% chance you do. His articles, advice, and insights on relationships have appeared internationally in outlets like Time Magazine, NPR, and the Oprah Winfrey Network. Dr. Melkin is president and director of YM Psychotherapy and Consultation in Cambridge. Well, Dr. Melkin, are you a narcissist? I'm just curious how you got involved in researching narcissism. Or are you a recovering narcissist, I should ask? I'm actually a recovering echoist, which is a whole oh. other topic that is related to narcissism. What's an echoist? So if you think of narcissism along a spectrum, and you really yeah. should because study after study, decades of research show that it's really best to think of narcissism as a pervasive universal trait that exists to some extent in all of us mm-hmm. to a greater or lesser degree. Um, I think of as the drive to feel special and we can talk about why I think that captures all forms of narcissism, but you think of that drive to feel special along a spectrum, imagine it from zero to 10. A lot of times people start at some narcissism bad and then all the way up to a lot of narcissism really bad. But what we've learned from the research is a little of that drive is helpful. And if you have none of it, If you have what's called a failure to self-enhance, that is what I describe as echoism. And the term echoism comes from the myth of Narcissus and Echo. Narcissus is the vain Greek youth who fell in love with his reflection. Echo is the nymph who was cursed to repeat 
the last few words she heard. She had no voice of her own, and she fell in love with Narcissus. And I like to think of echoism along those lines. These are people who, because of their experiences, have no drive to feel special or very little, fail to self-enhance, and they tend to fall into relationships with extremely narcissistic friends and partners. Not always, but a lot of time. And that pretty much described my dating life, right, for most of my early adulthood. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you've just described a lot of people I know. Okay. <laughs> a lot of women I know. All right, so let's dive right into narcissism because I think that, and I'm sure you've dealt with this a lot, people get confused with exactly what narcissism is. And we need to be very clear because I feel like the word is thrown out so casually all the time. So how would you... Dr. Malkin, how would you define narcissism? Well, as we've just discussed, I think the starting point is the drive to feel special, exceptional, or unique compared to the other 8 billion people, nearly 8 billion people on the planet. Is it the drive or do you feel those things? It's both. Mm-hmm. It's both. The, the reason it's both is because the drive is there. That is the intense engagement in experiences in a relationship in a way that's expressly geared to maintain this sense of feeling special. But people who struggle with narcissism, particularly in, this, in the extreme, don't always feel special. Mm-hmm. They're driven to create experiences so they can have that feeling, but it doesn't always stick and they don't always feel that way. So I would say it's both. There are three terms for a narcissist, correct? Correct. Can you tell me what those three terms are? Sure. So you think of the drive to feel special as the heart of narcissism. There's lots of ways to feel special. But to date, they come down to three that we've identified in the research. The first is extroverted narcissism, also called overt Mm -hmm. or grandiose or obvious. Okay. Really, it's that loud, outgoing brand of narcissism. The second type is introverted, when people were more inward and reflective uh, and less, less outgoing. Doesn't mean that they don't have any aspect of that. So that's more introverted or vulnerable or covert. Mm-hmm. And these are people who agree in self-report with questions like, uh, no one understands my problems. Few people have suffered as much as me. So you get the idea, the flavor of it, which is with overt narcissism, the grandiosity is obvious. And the insecurity is hidden. Right. In covert narcissism, the insecurity is obvious. Shy, anxious, withdrawn, self-doubting, low self-esteem. The grandiosity is on the inside or hidden, hence covert. And then there's a third brand of narcissism that we've identified recently in the research, which is communal narcissism. Mm-hmm. And communal narcissists agree with statements like, I'm the most helpful person I know. <laughs> and one t- <laughs> it always makes me laugh without fail. So I'm the most helpful person I know. And one day I'll be known for my good deeds. So these are people who feel special by virtue of their helpfulness or their altruism. As you might expect, their belief in their altruism and helpfulness isn't necessarily correlated with their actual altruism or helpfulness. But that's how they feel special. So those are the three types. And so are you born a narcissist? How do you acquire narcissistic traits? You know, it, it, like most answers in psychology and development and personality, the answer is it's really best understood as a combination of genetics or temperament and environment. We know from a a terrific longitudinal study by a psychologist named Phoebe Kramer, where Mm -hmm. she traced people over time for 21 years. She used data that had been around to track patterns of behavior. And one measure was early precursors for narcissism, like um, in preschoolers, like, like being melodramatic, being impulsive, always wanting to be the center of attention, being aggressive. These were signs as early as age or four or five that she discovered predict later on unhealthy or pathological narcissism. Unless those kids had a kind of parenting called authoritative parenting, which you want to think of as a combination of warmth and structure. It's kind of what it sounds like. Right. They set limits, they have boundaries, but they're caring, they're connected, they're empathic with their kids. 
And if the if those little sort of obnoxious tykes had that experience over time, they didn't grow up to be extremely narcissistic. They didn't show unhealthy narcissism. So with, combined with genetic studies that also show what we call in the research a concordance rate, where you look at twins – and if one twin is particularly separated at birth, but they're identical twins and they're separated, if one has narcissism, does the other, there's a high concordance rate. So that also suggests there's genetics or temperament involved. But we know that's not enough mm -hmm. because kids need a particular experience that leaves them insecure in a very specific way um, that also causes them to develop unhealthy narcissism over time. So if you had a narcissistic toddler and you were not an authoritative parent, let's say you were a free-range parent, chances are that narcissism would grow. Absolutely, particularly because that kind of unhelpful free-range parenting that you're talking about is often called permissive parenting. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not simply hands-off. It's not just laissez-faire. Parents who slip into that kind of permissive parenting are also not really paying close attention to what's going on with their kids. And so you take a kid with this kind of, and, and we're talking about a particular kind of narcissism, I should mention, right? When it's outgoing, when it's aggressive, that one tends to develop along these lines, particularly when kids don't have limits and boundaries. And if you take a kid with that temperament and put them in an environment where the parent's just kind of asleep at the switch in all kinds of ways, not just in boundaries and, and limits, but more importantly, emotional entombment. Mm -hmm. Are they paying attention to when their kid is sad or scared or lonely or blue? They're not paying attention to other things like obnoxious behavior. They're not paying attention to that either. That is a recipe for unhealthy narcissism. So is it a leap to say that narcissistic toddlers, when not having a strong connection to their parents, become bullies in high school? No, it's not a leap at all. The core of the problem there, this brand of narcissism, which is extroverted, it's the loud, brash, as I say, narcissists we all know and loathe, right? We all recognize that. And what drives that most powerfully is aggression, which is also wired in. We also come into the world with that biological equipment. Take a kid with that kind of aggression and give them uh, an experience where they're not taught to consider others, where they have, say, an authoritarian or bullying parent themselves, or a parent who doesn't really help them think about other people in this kind of empathic way that we're talking about authoritative parenting. Yeah, they're going to become a bully, right. for sure. And you just hope they don't become president one day. Correct. Yes. <laughs> because that's um, an interesting topic. Of course, most presidents are narcissists. Yes. Yeah. But there, I would imagine different levels of narcissism that works in their favor. And then there's those that work against. Correct. Yes. Um, yeah. I think you have to be somewhat of a narcissist to want to be president of the United States. And that is that is confirmed by research. There's yeah. a couple of researchers, James DeLuga, another one, Scott Lillenfield, Lillenfeld, excuse me, who uh, took measures of narcissism, of which we have many, um, and took one of the most popular. And you can take a measure like that and you can ask expert people to rate someone on that scale. And both these studies did that, and not surprisingly, look at presence over time and looking at their behaviors. And there's plenty of biographical historical data for this. Most of them scored high enough on these measures to be called narcissists. That doesn't mean disorder, which is right. your point. It means they had the drive to get them to that place. Exactly. And a high enough drive right. that is well above average compared to other people. But what we know from the research, too, is there's healthy and unhealthy aspects of narcissism and expressions of it. And they don't rise and fall in perfect step with one another. So you can be high enough on the narcissism scale to agree with statements like, I'm a natural born leader which you hope in somebody who wants to lead a country, for example, right. but not score high on measures like uh, I won't sp stop until I get the respect that's due me and I like to look in mirrors. Right. right? And I will be the fascist dictator of a democratic country. Right. right. Yes. Okay. Um, people with narcissistic personality disorder, which we should probably define, Please. are so addicted to that 
that need to feel special, so driven by it that they demonstrate what I call triple E, which is the core of pathological narcissism. Exploitation, which um, is doing whatever it takes to feel special no matter the cost to others. Entitlement, which is acting as though the world should bend to our will uh, because we're so special. And empathy impairments, exactly what it sounds like, becoming so blind to the needs and feelings of others because of our drive to feel special, uh, that we have to maintain that at all costs. We can't see what's going on with other people. And Triple E accounts for all the most destructive, dangerous behaviors that you see in narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. Um, so let me jump to, first of all, did you know your mother was a narcissist when you were a kid? I didn't. But circling back to your question, this is what got me into it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I didn't know there were no words for this anyway to kind of think of myself as a, as an echoist, and these these things came later for me in my own thinking and research as well. But when I was younger, uh, I had a, a dare I say it, a special connection with my mother. I mean, I, I knew her to be kind and caring and supportive. Looking back, there were red flags of her, her narcissism. Can you tell me what those were? That our relationship was really organized around me being a consummate caretaker. So she, for example, had migraines. I, th- I think she had migraines. I don't know now. Mm-hmm. All I know is she locked herself in her room, isolated herself, and seemed to be in pain and needed special attention. You see where this goes. This is, this mm-hmm. is what looking back I think of as, as a red flag, just one of many. But she often called me you know, her little helper, her little doctor, terms like this to really valorize and reinforce how great I was at attending to her. And at the same time, she could be caring with me and she was often warm. I wouldn't say she was the best listener. Again, another red flag. It was only when I later started learning about narcissism in undergraduate that I saw a description of narcissistic personality disorder in a book. And by then I'm a young adult uh, and it fit her so well. And now I was stuck with this paradox of this stark contrast between the mother I knew as a child and the mother that I knew as an adult. Mm -hmm. And how do I reconcile those? Well, it sounds like you had a narcissistic mother, but it sounds like what you said up top of the podcast, you were echoing. And so you were probably in relationships where you participated in some form of what you were like as a child with a narcissistic partner. Ooh, spot on, Allie. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not a professional, but uh, those are the connections I would make. There's a lot more to come after this short break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with dust-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. And we're back. So the majority of my listeners are women and... Younger women, even older women that are already in a relationship, maybe pursuing a relationship, what are some of the things they can look for when it comes to narcissism? I'm sure you've come across this yourself. Most of the sort of signs that people list, the the warning signs, they're really things that tend into abuse, gaslighting, put-downs. Uh, and those are behaviors that often come later. Mm-hmm. Most people are trying to put their best foot forward in a relationship, including people who are extremely narcissistic. So those are not the ones I focus on. Uh, really, they all come down to what I call the vulnerability dodge. And what I mean by that is the more narcissistic someone is, the more they have that particular form of insecurity I mentioned earlier called attachment insecurity. And what attachment insecurity is, is it means that this is a person who doesn't trust themselves in other people's hands emotionally. When they're sad, scared, lonely, blue, when they have vulnerable emotions in particular, they don't trust that they can turn to a special person or persons with that for mutual care and comfort. That is attachment insecurity. And extreme narcissism is a way of coping with that. And one of the ways narcissists cope with it is they avoid vulnerable states. If I don't go into those vulnerable feelings, if I stay away from them, if I don't feel them, if I don't share them, I'm not going to risk being hurt. Nothing bad is going to happen to me. So you see these things early on, subtle signs, like one of them I call emotion phobia. And a lot of people are phobic when it comes to emotion, but this is a particular brand that happens with all forms of narcissism. Where, say, for example, you're chatting with your date and, you know, you're talking to them about an experience that you've had. Say you've, you went through difficulty at work and you're feeling sad and you're feeling hopeless, you're feeling upset. And you're just trying to share a little bit about that. And they say to you, oh, gosh, I can't say I've ever felt that way. I try to look on the bright side of things. Now, a lot of people make a mistake like that. But delivered in that way, that is a particular combination of where they're not only trying to stay away from any vulnerable feelings in you, but in themselves, and at the same time, self-enhance. I would never feel that way. What's wrong with you? That's the message, right? That's Mm -hmm. weird. Who would feel that way? And as a matter of fact, I feel the opposite. Right. It's strange that you would feel otherwise. That's a good example. You're weak. You're weak. That's the implication. And it can be subtle. Right. I may have played it up more than I should have, but everybody runs into this from time to time. And when it's that combination of staying away from any kind of vulnerability and self-enhancing, trying to feel special or on top of experience or better at emotions than you are, right. that's a sign of narcissism. Yeah, I would assume that narcissists in a relationship, if they've started a relationship, and the person they're having a relationship with, maybe they're going through a hard time, which makes them vulnerable and emotional a lot, the narcissist would leave. That's a great segue. Sometimes, um, remember, mm-hmm. there, there is a brand of narcissism, introverted or vulnerable or covert. Ah. And these are people who feel special, exceptional, or unique by virtue of their suffering. Right. right? Okay. They, I'm, uh, no one's more misunderstood than me. No one has been passed over for promotions more often than me, right? And in the beginning of a relationship, they're going to put their best foot forward as well. Mm -hmm. And what that means is they might join you in that vulnerability. And you might not catch early on that it doesn't feel fully authentic, um, that it doesn't feel fully mutual, more along the lines of, oh, I've been through that too. And you may not catch the lack of mutuality. But they wouldn't necessarily leave. They'll stay around long enough if they're extremely 
narcissistic in this covert way to show you that you don't understand how much they've suffered. That's the that's where it will trend eventually. So what this would look like in the interaction is they might join you early on and talking about, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. I've been through that, too. And I remember this one time. And very quickly, you realize that they're talking about their suffering and you're not sharing yours at all anymore. Right. And uh, it must feel like sort of a fake attachment, which is the opposite exactly. of, kind of what you described before. So exactly. let's fast forward. And somebody is now married to a narcissist, uh, let's say an extreme narcissist. Is there any advice you can give them if they need to stay in the marriage? So we might need to break this in parts. I have a Let's lot to say it. about it. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Step one, and this is true of any relationship experience you have, I put the emphasis on safety. And not all extremely narcissistic people are abusive, uh, but many are. Mm -hmm. And it correlates, especially I mentioned that, that aggressive drive. Uh, the more aggressive drive somebody has, the more likely they are to show that really outgoing, loud, bullying kind of narcissism, which is not the covert or vulnerable kind. It doesn't come out in that way. And those types of narcissists are more likely to exhibit overt aggression as well, uh, which could be physical abuse. It could be like an onslaught of emotional abuse. So I always, always talk to people about the three stop signs first for any relationship. Uh, all kinds of things drive abuse, not just narcissism, but if you hear put downs, if the person is trying to control you financially, if they're gaslighting you, right? If they're trying to say and do things to make you feel like you're crazy when you're just trying to report events as they happened. Like I saw you look at your phone. Oh no, you're imagining things, that kind of thing. This is gaslighting. If you see that kind of abuse, that's one of the stop signs. Another stop sign is denial. I've talked to people about this a lot too, just in the same way if you have a partner who has substance abuse problem. If they're addicted to alcohol or if they're addicted to opiates and they can't acknowledge that there's any problem at all, they're not going to get better. So now imagine somebody who's extremely narcissistic where their whole problem is they can't allow mutuality in a relationship. You know, the, their drive to feel special overtakes everything. Right. If you imagine that situation of somebody who can't even acknowledge they struggle in any way and it's not going to get better, it's going to get really bad. And in fact, in the research, denial is a horrible predictor, meaning it predicts horrible things down the line. It, it often only gets worse. And then the third stop sign is psychopathy. Psychopathy and narcissism are related. Psychopathy is another trait, like narcissism. But unlike narcissism, where people often at their worst have blocks in empathy impairments, their mm -hmm. empathy might come and go. If they're motivated, just as we were talking about early on in a relationship, you might see flashes of empathy. With a psychopath, it's, it's all show. Um, and they feel almost wired in a lack of remorse or guilt. So this is somebody who you catch them in a lie and they don't flinch. Um, and they show no remorse and they show no guilt. We've gone beyond narcissism to psychopathy at mm -hmm. that point. And again, to me, that's another one of those stop signs that's not going to work in a relationship. You know, I have an example I want to give just because there's something that I witnessed in my own life that I think is important because you are pretty much describing the whole thing, which is I have a friend who was married and whenever I was around them, he was so verbally abusive to her, you know, and it was really uncomfortable for people to be around them because he would say, oh, what do you know? You're so stupid. You don't know. Or, well, she just won't lose that baby fat. And, you know, just, it was so, uh, it was horrific. And, but, you know, people at that level, people go, well, I guess there's got to be good points to that because she's still in it. And then one day she showed up at my apartment and he had beaten her up because she found uh, meth and a pipe in his belongings. And so for me, thinking quite rationally, I said, we have to call the police. And she kept saying, oh, no, no, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to get him mad. He's the father of my children. You know, protect him, protect him, protect him. Anyway, long story short, they went through a horrific divorce. Uh, he's a meth addict. He's also gay. And he showed all the extreme signs, the red flags that you're describing. 
But at the beginning, it was that kind of narcissism seemed like he was incredibly, um, you know, he was a proud man and he was so secure and he knew himself and, and that's what attracted her to him. And then over time, all these things developed to an extreme, obviously. Yeah, an alpha male in the beginning. Yeah, and he controlled the finances and all those other things. But, yeah. you know, they're now uh, finally divorced. And But it, for me, as an observer of this, this to me was an extreme example of everything you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Such a classic example, too, of um, how insidious this is in an abusive relationship. Right, where, where again, obviously, he he got worse and worse over time. Uh, but yeah, I any, don't think the drugs helped either. No, you know? no, and and they often go hand in hand as well. Nothing exacerbates uh, personality or character pathology more quickly than substance abuse or addiction. So obviously, it was all it was all escalating with him. But it's uh, horrible to witness that. Yep. And it's that classic depiction that you're describing right now where the person in the abusive relationship is just in it. And they they do a number of things. One is they take on responsibility for the bad behavior. We just have to wait for a pass. They're going through a difficult time. We've got to make sure things are better at home. Don't don't want to rock the boat. That's taking responsibility for someone's abuse. And it's inevitable if you're trying to stay connected to someone who's abusive. We see this. This is and this is why it becomes harder and harder to leave over time. Yeah. I was gonna ask you about that. It seems like it's incredibly difficult to extract yourself from a relationship with a narcissist. How do you do that? For practical reasons and emotional reasons. Right. Yeah. One of the biggest barriers, I would say, and this will speak particularly to people who struggle with echoism because it's sort of central to their defensive style, their ways of protecting themselves. One of the biggest barriers is self-blame. So you're in a bad relationship and you've got sunk cost, as we call it, where you've invested a lot. It's been years. You've got kids. Your lives are inextricably bound together or seemingly inextricably, right? It's going to be hard to untangle things. Mm -hmm. There are a lot more reasons to explain to yourself why you should stay than why you should go. And one of the ways that people accomplish that is they tell themselves, well, I'm being too sensitive. I need to approach this differently. I need to understand that he's going through a difficult time. I've always been this way where I have really intense emotional reactions. I have to be mindful of that. Uh, And that self-blame stands in the way of the anger that's natural and healthy and important that you felt watching this happen. I'm sure you weren't just sad. I'm sure you were angry at times on on your friend's behalf. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to do all kinds of legal action. and Absolutely. Yeah. And that is the process. When I work with people who are in abusive relationships, whether it's a mild form, but regardless of whether somebody is extremely narcissistic, whatever is causing us, one of the first things I do is try to get them in touch with healthy anger. I don't know if, you know, people are always surprised when I talk about anger being important and healthy. It is. It's it's wired in. It's primary. Anger helps us stand up and say no and connect to feelings about what matters and what's right for us. Part of dignity feelings. And if we've learned that it's dangerous to express anger, which is the other insidious impact of an abusive relationship, like it, it makes things worse often when we try to express our anger. Right, So then it gets easier and easier to try to silence or squelch it. But the trade-off then is that you're cut off from the kinds of impulses and awareness and insight that help you leave. So my first step is helping people end self-blame. And instead of asking, what am I doing wrong? To ask, am I disappointed or angry? Right. Yeah, I would assume it's how you acquire agency of your own life, you know? And I watched somebody who had none, you know, and now it would seem to me, even though it's counterintuitive, that they then repeat this pattern like this, this friend of mine, you know, 
I don't know what she's going to do, but I hope she doesn't now meet another narcissist and sort of get into the same cycle. That can happen. And this is one of the reasons I developed the concept of echoism. Remember, kind of the rule of living for an echoist is the less room I take up, the better. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's their stance in life. And they're caring and generous people that they can have relationships with. And they're lucky to find them. But the, re the reality is that anybody who needs you to give up your voice in order to feel connected to you or to feel comfortable with you, anybody who needs you to continue that way of living that you've become comfortable with is probably going to be more narcissistic because they're kind of flip sides of each other. Narcissists have an extreme drive to feel special. Echoists are afraid of special attention. And when that becomes a way of living life, staying connected to people and moving through the world, you got to think about who's drawn to that. The person who's going to be comfortable, most comfortable with you, is the one who likes that you don't take up any room. Right. Who likes that you don't challenge their extreme drive to feel special. So what starts out feeling as you being careful or mindful of others in a relationship can become what I call defensive empathy, right? Where, where it, it's kind of the mirror of the what about me stance in extreme narcissism. The echoing side of that is, well, what about him? What about her? Look what they've been through. They've told me about their childhood. Often people who are extremely narcissistic have been abused and neglected themselves. So they have that as part of their backstory. And often people who continue to get into abusive relationships, one of the things that they struggle with is they trade their anger for empathy when you should be able to have both. Right. So it sounds like there's two different types of childhood trauma that then inform kind of who they are or will be as adults. So I'm calling it a submissive. And the other abused child is is sort of hooked into the narcissistic traits. That seems like a perfect match. It is. Narcissist and echo. It's, it feels like low versus high self-esteem in a way. The so high self-esteem takes up all the room and the low self-esteem just cowers in the corner and takes what it can get. It can be. I prefer to think of it as... Um, addictive self-enhancement or drives to feel special versus a failure to self-enhance or fear of special attention. All right. But the well, reason that's because you lecture at Harvard. So I'm putting it in. <laughs> this is but, my vernacular. <laughs> but the reason also is because narcissists often don't even have high self-esteem. But they mask it well. The loud, brash kind do. But remember, brass, the yeah. introverted or covert narcissists yep. may visibly suffer from low self-esteem. They might even endorse statements like, I'm not all that special. Nobody really cares about me. Right, which is the harder narcissist to spot. Because I think in our culture, we always equate narcissism with big, loud bullies, like I said before. So the quieter ones are very hard to, to label narcissists. They could be so many other things. Precisely, yes. And it's time for a short break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with dust-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. 
And now in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome back to Go Ask Alley. What would be your advice to people that have familial relationships with people that are narcissists? How do you preserve your own dignity, self-control when you're constantly having to deal with a narcissist? Yeah. Often people can't just take off. They can't just go no contact as it's often described. Because you you Um, never abandoned your mother because she was a narcissist. I didn't. So so what I did is, again, in non-abusive relationships, something I'll call empathy prompts. I use these with my mother all the time. And that is when she was being critical or accusing me, for example, of uh, using funds from selling off stuff that was at their house after my father died to help her move because she was destitute because she'd spent down all her cash. And I needed to use some of it to pay for the move because I was a poor starving graduate student. I didn't have, I didn't have the money to do it without some help. So we got Mm -hmm. a few thousand dollars, some of which went to the move. And she spent an an hour interrogating me about what had happened to the rest of the money. With her, I used an empathy prompt. It's like, mom, I love you. I care about you. You're my mother. You're one of the most important people in my life. And it's devastating to hear you ask me this as though you think I might have just taken the money. It makes me feel like you think I'm a horrible person or I'm nothing in your eyes. That's an empathy prompt where you first emphasize the importance of the person to you, the specialness of the relationship, if you will. And it mm-hmm. kind of lights up those blocked areas of the brain devoted to connection and caring and concern in somebody who's extremely narcissistic. And then you share from a vulnerable place. It would be tempting for me. It would be tempting for anybody to say, what the hell are you talking about? Are you out of your mind? How could you even ask me something that awful? Which you can do. But as anybody on the receiving end of that is going to get more defensive and protective. Right. And with a narcissist, that means they get more narcissistic. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it actually cuts me off from the point, which is I want my mother to be caring and I want to have a connection to her. And me blasting her is actually about distance, which is great if you don't have to be in the room with the person and you just want to get away. Not so great if what you're saying is I need you to be kinder to me. Right. For us to be close. So that's an empathy prompt. That's what I did with her. I mean, there are other things that I did that were more about managing the relationship. Right. But that's something worth trying if you have connection with this person. And they're more in the mild range. Remember that spectrum from zero that I talked about? Think yeah. of from zero to 10, left to right, zero, like extreme echoist, 10 is pathologically narcissistic. Someone around a six or seven, it's worth trying empathy prompts with. That's good to know. What else are you learning? Like, is there any kind of medication that's going to come out so we can medicate narcissists and block those brain centers that tell them to be the way they are? Well, you've got a point that you're making there that actually taps into what we do know works. One medication for... So the people I see who have narcissistic personality disorder, there's kind of a selection bias, uh, as we call it, where it's for somebody to get in my door, for example, they are not likely to be the kind of person with narcissistic personality disorder who won't admit to problems. And we know this is confirmed by research. It's usually people with introverted narcissism. They're the ones who show up for therapy because they're willing to say, I'm upset. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. And when when you get somebody like that in the in the room, one of the first things I do with them, I do this with 
everybody to some extent, but especially somebody who's extremely narcissistic, is I help them reduce their anxiety. So anything that helps somebody with particularly vulnerable narcissism feel less anxious, whether it's medication or whether it's psychotherapy, is going to reduce their narcissism over time eventually. Because the less anxious someone is, the less they're operating in defense mode. The whole point of these automatic or unconscious defenses, like pathological narcissism, which has a collection of defensive responses, you know, that can all boil down to the vulnerability dodge, as I said. Mm -hmm. Like with any of these, the, the more anxiety drops, the less people are operating in the defensive mode. So it's not atypical for me to have somebody in the room whether it's because it's a combination of us talking about it and them getting on some anti-anxiety meds or just working with me to help them know what it feels like to not be in that fight-or-flight state or tense or angry, which is also anxiety-masked. So often people with covert narcissism are irritable or bristly, but it's anxiety. Right. And so when I help them reduce that anxiety, that's often an event in and of itself. I had somebody recently come to me and they said, I've never felt this calm in my life. Wow. And they started using these techniques. And once I've got them there, somebody who's calm isn't going to go on the attack. Right. They're not going to put you down. They don't need to. They don't have the insecurity firing up in them. Right. So direct answer to your question is yeah i mean you get them on medic on medication that reduces their anxiety that's going to help right i mean it's going to help most problems really if exactly. we can get lower the stress factor so yeah before i let you go um this is going to sound very narcissistic, but it's my podcast, and I ask my the people that come on as my guests a lot of questions, and so I like to turn it at the end and let my guest ask me a question about anything. So do you have a question for me? Can you call me Schmoopy? Oh, <laughs> somebody that. watches Seinfeld. <laughs> I'll call you Schmoopy, of course. <laughs> That's not my question. Okay. It, it is related, though. Yeah. There are certain shows that we grew up with that we that we watch addictively. For me, it was Gilligan's Island when I was little, but in my twenties, mm-hmm. it was in Living Color. Oh wow! Yeah, I watched that show again and again, and I watched it with my friends. And I'm not going to assume that it was a great experience for you, but I'm, my question is: What's your most memorable time on In Living Color? Wow. Well, I'll tell you one thing that you'll appreciate because of what you do, which is. You know, very early on, I learned that I thought that humor and comedy could actually be kind of healing tools. And it was on In Living Color that I realized um, making people laugh was actually a superpower. And so that was one of the great things that came out of it. And I talk a lot in my podcast. I use humor to parent, you know, because I find it more effective than saying, like, you go to your room right now. So let's see, there's a lot of memories within living color. Um, and I got to meet Jim Carrey and David Allen Greer and Jamie Foxx. Uh, I will say I had a lot of fun with Jamie Foxx and we did a lot of crazy sketches together. And one sketch we did was he had a character called ugly woman where he, yeah, he wore makeup (laughs) and a wig and we did a basic instinct, ugly woman. And I was Sharon Stone. And so in the sketch, now we did it live. So, you know, there was no changing anything. And so in the sketch, we're supposed to kind of fake kiss. And Jamie was chewing gum and he just stuck his tongue in my, and he deposited the chewed gum in my mouth. So rather than, you know, sort of freak out or hide it, I took the gum out of my mouth and held it up. And the whole audience was like, you know, but that was, that was how off the rails we were, which was exciting. I mean, they would never be able to make this show today. Everyone Mm -hmm. would be canceled. But at the time, you know, it felt very groundbreaking and, you know, you felt like you were pushing the envelope a little, which was pretty cool. So you were awesome on it. Thank you. And thank you for thank you for all your work you're doing and oh, rethinking narcissism. I've so enjoyed your book, Dr. Malkin, and I really I, I bought a 
bunch of them to send to some friends. Not because I was calling them narcissists, but I think it's an important read and recognizing and coping with narcissists in the world. So I really appreciate you coming on and talk to me about oh, this. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for listening to Go Ask Alley. I've got to hop off this podcast because I just realized I am riddled with narcissists in my life and I need to go get rid of them. Please read Dr. Malkin's book, Rethinking Narcissism, The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissists. Follow him on Instagram at Dr. Malkin or YouTube at Craig Malkin. For more info on what you heard in this episode, just check out our show notes. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Go Ask Allie and follow me on social media on Instagram at The Real Allie Wentworth. Now, if you'd like to ask me a question or suggest a guest or a topic to dig into, I'd love to hear from you. And there's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can call or text me at 323-364-6356, or you can email a voice memo right from your phone to goaskalleypodcast at gmail.com. And if you leave a question, you just might hear it on Go Ask Alley. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.